18 verses 9 through 16 is our text. We'll begin our reading at chapter 18 verse 1. Read through chapter 16. This is God's inspired and inerrant word. Now it came about in the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. He did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. For he clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went, he prospered. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. He defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory, from the watchtower to the fortified city. Now in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. At the end of three years, they captured it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hashem, king of Israel, Samaria was captured. Then the king of Assyria carried away Israel into exile to Assyria and put them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gozen, and in the cities of the Medes, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant, even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded they would neither listen nor do it. Now the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria, Lachish, saying, I've done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. So the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Hezekiah gave him all the silver which was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. From that time, or rather at that time, Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria reading of God's holy word. Be seated, please, as we turn to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, as we turn our attention now to the preaching of your word, we confess that we are needy people, that we need your word, that we need its directives, that we need the principles that you have set forth uh, in your word 
so that we might live godly lives and follow you all the days of our lives. Uh, whether we find those principles in the Old Testament scriptures, as you have been pleased to reveal them there and reveal Christ our Lord there, or whether we find them in the New Testament scriptures. We need all of these. So as we, as we set our minds upon this passage in 2 Kings, we pray that you would grant to us the Spirit's help and give us understanding, give us insight, enable us to see what the Holy Spirit has revealed here, how the Spirit has moved the narrator of uh, the book of 2 Kings to write all that you, O oh God, uh, desired him to write, to record for us these important principles that we find in our text this evening. Give us, O oh Lord, liberally of the Holy Spirit as we consider your holy word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Martin Luther famously described justified believers as simul justus et peccator. When translated, this Latin phrase means at the same time righteous and sinners. This seems like a contradiction, but Luther was simply saying that in one sense believers are just, and in another sense they're sinners. In and of ourselves, under God's scrutiny, we are still sinners, but by faith in Jesus Christ, his righteousness is imputed or credited to us, and God accounts us as just or righteous. This is the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is who the justified are in Christ until his second coming or until they're taken home to glory. We observe the same spiritual dichotomy that Luther observed in King Hezekiah. The first eight verses of chapter 18 not only describe the significant reformation of the true religion under his reign, but also his remarkable piety. As we read again uh, this evening, as we did last Lord's Day, that he trusted in Jehovah and he cleaved to Jehovah. He knew the living God and therefore made many wise decisions that set Judah on the right course, the right spiritual path. And yet, as the account of his reign unfolds in verses 9 to 16 and beyond, we see a man who failed in his faith because of the difficult environment in which he ruled. We'll look at this text under our consideration this evening under two propositions. In the first place, faith often operates in a challenging environment. Faith often, often operates in a challenging environment. And then secondly, faith isn't immune to significant problems. Faith is not immune to significant problems. First place then, 
faith often operates in a challenging environment. Verses 9 to 12. These verses rehearse the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel, and we wonder why we need to hear it again. Why we need to hear about all that happened during Shalmaneser's siege of Samaria and its fall in 722 B.C., about the destinations of exiled Israelites, verse 11, and the reason for the whole disaster in verse 12, their transgression of the covenant. That long section that we considered in chapter 17 covered that extensively. Why rehash it here? Well, in the first place, it reminds the reader of the kind of environment in which Hezekiah pursued his bold policy of rebelling against Assyria, chapter 18 and verse 7. Judah's king was well aware of the inherent dangers in his refusal to serve King Shalmaneser. Thus, we're given to understand the gutsiness of Hezekiah's revolt against the king of Assyria. Faith ordinarily operates in a challenging environment and sometimes to the extreme. One need only look to the great hall of faith in Hebrews 11 to see this principle at work in the New Testament. By faith, Noah obeyed God's command to build the ark during the period of redemptive history when the wickedness of man was so great on earth and every uh, was great on earth and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 6 verse 5 says by faith, a Hebrew says Abraham obeyed God's call to go to Canaan, not knowing where he was going, living as an alien in the land of promise. These the writer of the Hebrews says, became heirs of righteousness and heirs of the promise. By faith, Moses refused to, be, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing instead to endure ill treatment with God's people, rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater than all the treasures of Israel, uh, Egypt rather. By faith, Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah obeyed God in the days of the judges when every man did that which was right in his own eyes. By faith, David took his stand opposite of the Philistine Goliath, something no one else in Israel's army dared to do, had the guts to do, trusting in Jehovah, the living God, to deliver the giant and the Philistine army into his hands. And now Hezekiah, the new David, as we referred to him last Lord's Day, trusts in Jehovah, cleaves to him, and rebels against the king of Assyria. Faith takes guts. It takes guts to stand against abortion in opposition to the rising tide of public opinion, especially when even some churches are caving into it. It took intestinal fortitude for a coalition of reformed churches to inject itself into Atlanta's pride parade 
in October of last year to bear open testimony to Christ the Savior, warning against sin and its curse, judgment and torment in hell for those who refuse to believe in Jesus Christ. Especially when they knew that those who had done so in Athens, Georgia, were mobbed and harassed by participants of that parade in that city. It takes guts to make a stand of, uh, against ungodliness in your work environment. It takes guts to stand for godliness in your family when uh, relationships are at stake. Like Moses, we must be willing to bear the reproach of Christ. So the inspired narrator rehashes what happened in the northern kingdom in the first place to show us what kind of environment Hezekiah was in which he was operating. But furthermore, the inspired, the inspired narrator's recap of the, of the northern kingdom's fall masterfully sets up a stark contrast between Israel's blatant transgression of Jehovah's covenant and Hezekiah's zeal to restore covenant faithfulness in the southern kingdom of Judah, verses 1 through 6. And that may lead us to expect a different outcome for Hezekiah in terms of the Assyrian threat. And that leads us to our second proposition. Faith isn't immune to significant problems. The new David is going to have to face a new Goliath who makes his appearance in the 14th year of his reign. Verse four, uh, 13, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. Things looked very bleak in Judah in 701 BC. Now all of Judah's principal cities are under Assyrian control and Jerusalem will be next. But if Hezekiah is everything that verses 1 through 8 say he is, surely such devotion to Jehovah would be sufficient to bring God's blessing rather than Assyria's attack. How could Jerusalem be facing such a significant crisis if Hezekiah was so righteous? The text is simply teaching us that faith isn't a prophylactic that shields the believer from all disasters. You can trust in Jehovah and cleave to Jehovah, chapter 18, verses 5 and 6, and the Assyrians will still come. This doesn't override the, the overall promise of blessing and help given to faith and obedience in uh, such passages as Deuteronomy 28, uh, 1 to 14, or Psalm 37, 3 to 9, but it recognized that, uh, recognizes that believers often encounter trouble and grief on the journey of faith. If that weren't the case, our faith wouldn't grow. If that weren't the case, 
our conformity to Christ would not increase. The testing of your faith produces endurance, James says in the first chapter of his epistle. And if faith didn't encounter trials and tribulations along the way, we might be tempted to view faith as a lucky charm. The way Israel viewed the Ark of the Covenant in the days of the judges when they were soundly defeated by the Philistines, 1 Samuel 4.3, and said, it's because we didn't have the Ark of the Covenant with us when we, uh, when we uh, attacked the Philistines. And uh, as Judah regarded the bronze serp serpent more recently in the days of, of the king, 2 Kings 18, verse 4. Many who have held this prophylactic view of faith find themselves disappointed with God and altogether disillusioned with the faith. A man earnestly prays that God will heal his wife, but she still dies of cancer, and he never prays again. A woman who is a faithful member of a church is abandoned by her husband, and she abandons the church. My wife and I were talking to a waitress at a local restaurant. We asked her if she had a church home. She didn't, and so we invited her to come and worship here with us. She declined, saying that she was mad at God because God had allowed her grandfather to die, and she would never attend church again. 2 Kings 18 is a helpful corrective to this view of faith. It tells you that you can be the king of Judah who does the right things in terms of reform, covenant reform in Judah, who trusts in the Lord, who obeys Jehovah's commandments, and yet your enemy may nevertheless come and threaten your land. It's helpful to faith, to faith to know that it's not immune to problems. Verses 14 to 16 present another problem that faith has. It's subject to lapses. In the face of this serious onslaught, Hezekiah, verse 14, the king of Judah sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear king of Assyria imposed an exorbitant sum of 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Hezekiah drained the temple and royal treasuries, even stripping gold from overlaid temple doors, verses 15 and 16. We've seen this before in First and Second Kings. An inspired narrator always views the draining of the temple treasuries in a negative way, whether the funds are used to bribe foreign kings to intervene on Judah's behalf, as uh, Kings Asa and Ahaz did, 1 Kings 15, 2 Kings 16, or to buy off an aggressor, as Joash did successfully, 2 Kings chapter 12. So, Hezekiah's unsuccessful attempt to buy off the king of Assyria, chapter 18, verses 14 to 16, is a failure of faith. 
and a failure of wisdom for that matter, since Sennacherib still sends his emissaries to demand the surrender of Jerusalem, verses 17 and following. Now, someone may object that this contradicts verses 1 through 8. After the extensive worship reforms Hezekiah carried out, after all that said of his trust in Jehovah and clinging to Jehovah and keeping his commandments, after the high commendation that he receives in verse 5, how can he still feel in faith? The answer is found in the fact that chapter 18, verses 1 to 8, is a summary of Hezekiah's whole reign, just as chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, is a summary of Ahaz's entire reign. So the trust and the obedience uh, of verses 1 through 8, uh, the trust and obedience spoken of there are what Hezekiah came to have as a result of the whole Assyrian ordeal. And the inspired narrator of 2 Kings summarizes that for us at the beginning to show overall what kind of king Hezekiah was. It's true that in verses 1 to 8, the, uh, some of Hezekiah's initial reforms are specified, but primarily they're giving an evaluation of the king's total reign, which isn't contradicted by a particular failure in his faith. Uh, there's no conflict between an overall positive trajectory of faith that nevertheless experiences lapses of faith. The account of King David has taught us this. The account of the new David, Hezekiah, teaches us this. Christian experience teaches us this as well. And there are a number of practical things uh, that we ought to take away from this text in the form of observations, in the form of recognitions. We ought to, in the first place, recognize that a godly faith does not make you immune to attack. In the passage that we just considered, a man of faith is subjected to the same pressures and attacks as those who have disobeyed the covenant. Believers of godly convictions and strong faith can stumble in that faith. Secondly, recognize how prone you are to lapses in faith. Paul informs us in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, that faith is, must be realistic, that our faith, the faith that we exercise, our walk with God, must be realistic. He warns us against the false notion that a strong faith cannot fall into the same snares that have trapped others. Therefore, he writes, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. And then thirdly, perhaps more important than any of these, is to recognize how dependent you are on God's grace and strength. When you do fall into sin, go to the throne of grace in order that you might have your sins covered. 
in the blood of Christ's atonement. Plead the atoning blood of Jesus to cover your sins. Be often before that throne and plead with God for his promised grace. The best antidote any believer has is realizing that lapses in faith can happen and praying that by God's grace and strength, they will not. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we look to you now. We come before your throne of grace. Pray that we would understand the principles that you have set before us here in uh, your word. That we would recognize the challenging environment in which faith operates. Uh, that we would be mindful and watchful as we seek to walk before you faithfully. We pray that you would help us to understand that we are not immune, especially from a Satan's deception from his attacks. Help us to recognize that we have a real enemy, a one who possesses uh, diabolic power, and the one who still prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, that we have a target on our backs as Christians. Teach us how prone we are to sin. Help us not to be proud uh, in our faith. Help us to understand that a strong faith can fall into the same, the same traps that others have fallen into. Let us remember Paul's admonition. The one who thinks he stands ought to take heed lest he fall. Teach us to recognize how dependent we are on your grace, O Lord. And we pray that these lapses in faith won't happen. We pray, O God, that you would grant to us the grace and the strength that you promised to us in your word that you would stand by us, that you would be to us a rock and a fortress, a strong deliverer. We ask all these things in Jesus' name.